0: Hello and welcome to episode 69 of The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine exploring the multitude of reasons that people get hooked on this game. My name's Rod Murray and alongside my colleague John Huggan we're privileged to meet some of the most diverse and interesting characters to make up the game and on this episode you are in for a special treat. If you're anything like me then much of what you think and feel about golf will have been shaped by those who write about it. Over the centuries, golf's been blessed to have had among its numbers some of the very best to have put pen to paper or finger to keyboard. Among the modern scribblers, there are a few who stand out, but none more so than Golf Channel's Jaime Diaz, and it is Jaime who Huggy is chatting with on episode 69. Huggy, good to catch up with you. Have I overhyped Jaime there?
1: Uh, You you have not, no. Um, uh, Certainly, I'm a huge fan of... uh just About everything Jaime's ever written, to be honest. Um, basically, because I agree with him on most things, but not all things. We, 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 um, we've never quite come to terms with uh, the uh, the goings on at the country club in 1999 at the Ryder Cup. Oh, um, nice, good. Which was ironic given that's uh, that we uh, recorded the podcast at, at the country club last week during the US Open. Um, but we, not that we talked about that much in the podcast, but um. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's just one of the best, isn't he? I mean, he worked for Sports Illustrated, Golf Digest, the New York Times. He might be the only
0: guy who's completed that hat trick. He's a terrific writer. It's uh, some trifecta, isn't it? What's the disagreement about How could he disagree with you about Brookline? Surely he agrees that what happened <laughs> well, was unconscionable.
1: To be, to be fair, most Americans do disagree <laughs> with them. Um, you know, I'm I'm of the opinion that um, and the, an opportunity was missed there. I think yeah. – uh, If Justin Leonard wasn't going to give the putt, Ben Crenshaw should have marched onto the green and conceded the
0: Lathabel's putt for the half and and moved on to the next hole. Ah, Let's leave that can of worms, which will never, I think, (laughs) come to any resolution. (laughs) I met Jaime briefly down here at the President's Cup in, I'm going to say, 2011. One of the genuinely also nicest and most authentic people I think I've ever met. Mm. Genuinely interested and curious about everyone around him, was surrounded by a bunch of writers in Australia who were worshipping at his feet, and he couldn't understand why. Most of them have got um, how can I put this sizable egos,
1: yeah. And Jaime doesn't have any of that. I mean, he's incredibly modest, and and you're you're right. He spends most of the time wanting to talk about you or other people, or and he, he's not entirely comfortable talking about himself or his work, which is you know as I say, if anybody out there is listening to this and has read any of Jaime's stuff, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and we talked a little bit about the writing process, and he, I quoted something to him that he'd said to me years ago about how how he does it and uh, it stuck with me it stuck me with me forever um he said that he just keeps writing until it makes sense to him wow which makes perfect
0: sense of course it does how <laughs> infuriatingly simple <laughs> Why didn't any of the rest of us think of that? Uh, an extraordinary sort of chap. Uh, you've known Jaime, I guess, for a long time. I guess you would have been uh, partners in crime with him in some ways at Golf dotus He's now at Golf Channel. We don't get to read as much of Jaime as we used to, and mm. I think the game is worse for it, particularly at the current moment where it's such a fractured landscape. It would be wonderful to have more of Jaime's input, I suspect.
1: Absolutely. I, mean, I, I miss. I um, I told him that Um this week that uh, I missed his writing. He, he does occasional piece for the golf channels website, but only occasional. Um, and he, he's now a pundit as I call it. He's yeah. uh, he's on there voicing his opinions and views and, and informing people, but which is in, in, you know, it's a whole different skill set. but he's getting better at that all the time. Um, Cause he does, I think he, he does like everybody else. He gets a bit nervous um, doing that. And it, when it certainly when it, when it was fresh and, and new to him, but he's uh He's well, he's well worth listening to. And he, as, as I say, he's, um, I don't think even the Golf Channel use him enough. I mean, I'm
0: biased, but uh, I'd like to see more of him on there. Bite size doesn't suit Jaime, I wouldn't think. He wouldn't be great mm-hmm. at Twitter. He's at his best when you just give him as much space as he needs to say what it is that needs to be said because you'll know that it'll be yeah, just the right a- leg. Absolutely. And, uh, and they should do more of that. I
1: think... Uh, Less of Brando Chambly and more of Jaime Diaz. with my advice. <laughs>
0: we've, we've, we've put our stakes in the ground. I have not, as yet, Huggy, had the opportunity to listen to the whole interview. What are some of the highlights I should be listening out for? Can you recall, in that foggy brain of yours, having done a forty-seven million-hour flight from Boston to Edinburgh?
1: Well, we we talked a bit, um, a lot about Tiger Woods and Ta- Jaime's relationship with Tiger. He's he's known Tiger since uh, Tiger was in his early teens. So, and it was around the family. Uh, when Tiger was growing up and covered you know, Tiger at all the junior events. So he's known him probably better. Of course, he's been closer to than almost any other journalist. Um, not so much now. Uh, we also talked about Jaime's involvement in Hank Haney's book, yeah, The Big Miss. Which was, Jaime was the ghostwriter on that, and uh, that kind of ended or at least fractured uh, his relationship with Tiger. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Have that been repaired at all? You would hope that Tiger in this second phase of life might see the error of his ways there. Yeah, a little bit, I think, but it's not what it was, and no. it, I don't think it ever will be. No, yeah. indeed. Let's get on with it, Huggy. Enough out of us too. let Let's have a listen to Jaime Diaz. Thanks for your time for the intro today. Anytime. Welcome
1: to the latest edition of the Thing About Golf podcast. Um, my guest this time around is uh, one of my favorite people, and certainly one of my favorite writers, Jaime Diaz. Uh, the first question is welcome, and the first question is always the same here. What was
2: and is the Thing About Golf for you? Yeah. <laughs> It's a wonderful way to start uh, any conversation because it goes right to the heart of it. But, you know, I don't think we always think about the heart of it very much. But for me, you know, the thing about golf, I think it was just a, bl- a blend and a uh, sort of a merging of my relationship with my father, um, his love of sports, my love of sports, and then realizing that I could uh, play the game even though I was sort of an undersized kid and uh, it was sort of a little niche for me, uh, in my own kind of self-image, and then you know as you grow older, you realize how how broad golf is, and there's an aesthetic component, and there's a uh, sort of a psychological component, and then there's a romantic component, and it's always, uh, you know, this this very multi-dimensional, very fulfilling thing, and it, it has stayed fulfilling my whole life. When you look back at Jaime
1: the kid, what, what do you? see what was he, what was he getting from it
2: well my dad really was a, kind of a frustrated athlete because uh, he had been a good athlete but he came from spain so he was an immigrant in america and he picked up uh, soccer uh as he had in, in spain and um you know played at the university of san francisco and and played you know semi-pro leagues and and kind of scratched that itch but then, inevitably, it sort of fizzled out just because America didn't have the same soccer culture, obviously, as Spain or Europe did. And then he started playing golf. And I think he just transferred all that energy and all that love of the game and competitiveness um, to that. And he just kind of brought me along as a little kid. And I just watched. I wasn't like him. I wasn't as good an athlete or as good a competitor. But um, I did kind of love the game. And I loved sports. Uh we used to go to, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, so there was Willie Mays, and there was just some iconic kind of um, sports traditions in the Bay Area. And golf was one of them, actually. Uh, San Francisco has a rich golf history. And we just played, you know, played muni courses with them, Harding Park, which now, you know, holds uh, professional events. And there was another kind of very uh, charming one called Lincoln Park, which is right over the Golden Gate Bridge. So, you know, it was like a way of getting out and a way of uh, – sharing time with my dad uh getting out in really beautiful places and then finding that I wasn't bad at it and and loved the idea I just I remember being with my uncle and just hitting a little cut down 3 when I was probably about 8 years old and just happened to hit it in the middle of the club and watching it actually drew I remember it drew it seemed like it went 500 yards but it probably been about 80 uh and just watching the flight of the ball was uh was something that just captured me so Although I always played the other sports just with kids, golf was kind of the one that, you know, I was a little nerdy about it, you know, no, not me personally, but it was had a nerdy image. So it was this sort of singular thing that I just kind of kept um, not private, but, you know, didn't play with other kids necessarily play with my dad. I, I was going to say that the, 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 you need a bit of courage.
1: I always think as a teenager to, to be a golfer, <laughs> I was the same. I mean, the, the, there's a big team culture in this country, in America, obviously in the same where I come from. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be you've got to separate yourself a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. I would think in Scotland it wouldn't have been as separate, but uh, no, it, well, it's, but, but still, still but yeah, is golf part, is still right? a niche. I think people consider or try to think of golf as a mainstream sport and I don't think it ever will be and that doesn't mean it's anything bad about it. It's just, you know, there's kind of particular conditions that have to exist for you to become a golfer, especially as a, as a kid. But when you're lucky, if you get to Do it as a kid. But as you say, when you do it as a kid, it's kind of a singular experience. Sometimes you're you're by yourself. And I, I, you know, I actually like that part of it. Uh, not that I'm a loner, but there's something beautiful of just playing golf by yourself and just figuring it out and, and thinking about a lot of things and how to get better. And, and then as you grow in the game, you start comparing yourself and understanding, you know, what it takes to really be good. and, And that becomes this fascinating, Unreachable thing, of course, but at the same time, you know this kind of this uh artistic uh excellence that you admire, you know, whether it was Nicholas or anybody else, yeah, when did you
1: disappear down the rabbit hole of writing then I mean when did you decide that yeah. that was what you were better at than you were at well, it was golf pretty,
2: balls? <laughs> I, like me you know? I wasn't a great student, but i i I liked uh writing these little you know occasional essays not that that was I wasn't doing it independently but whenever I was assigned one it would I'd always do a little better at that than anything else and um I think because I like sports so much I started reading sports biographies pretty young maybe 10 11 years old and inevitably I started reading about golf and uh and golf I realized had more although I like the baseball biographies and the football biographies it seemed like the actual game was written about more in golf than other sports so I started reading golf books and I remember I, I, I was a avid subscriber of Sports Illustrated and they had an offer on a, a Dan Jenkins's uh, book that had just come out it was, and it was actually a compilation of his stories for Sports Illustrated uh, uh, from a series called The Best 18 Holes of Golf in America and uh, I had that book under my bed for it seemed like two or three years I'd reread it and you know I wasn't Obviously, a sophisticated reader, but there was something about Jenkins that you know was funny. Obviously, even even at a young age, it was. I, I mean, he, I, he changed the way it was done. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't. I mean, I read the sports page quite uh, avidly, and you guys may be familiar with Art Spander, and uh, Art was a uh, the beat writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. So I would read, you know, uh, the, the golf reports in there, and just a very funny story. Uh, my dad and I played in the father and son tournament in northern california and we won it a couple of times because my dad really was a good competitor he wasn't the greatest golfer but he could putt and uh, we were good in match play and of course father and son is not the highest level of golf but for me it was a big deal um and so my my, grand, my uncle was a, a photographer and he watched this play and he took our picture and he goes let's go to the chronicle because sometimes he'd freelance for them and it was sunday in 1970 um in july and uh, we. We uh, rang the bell because the place wasn't open, and they let us up. And Art Spander was there, and he had just gotten back from the uh, what I still call the British Open <laughs> uh, at St Andrews in 1970, and uh, had reported on it and told us all about Doug Sanders and Nicholas and the whole thing. And you know, we the little report on our little father and son thing. But I was really taken. And Art's a very garrulous guy, and you know, to this day, you know, he's still here. I mean, he's oh, here it's unbelievable. Week. Yeah, and uh, you know, I. I actually love the guy because uh, I don't think anybody that I've ever known has loved the the uh, just the process of being a newspaper guy, being a journalist as as art. He carries that love with him, um, and so uh, it was. I was just struck uh, by what a life that must be. I thought, you know, maybe that's something I could do. I, mean, I was fourteen or fifteen years old, um, and from that point, I think I started thinking about I can be a sports writer. Uh, Not necessarily golf writer, but definitely because Art covered all sports, but but he definitely liked golf, and he'd kind of he was coming up with Johnny Miller actually at that time, Um, so that kind of was a. But I was an English major in college, and I, you know, I I, I'm a lazy writer, as you know, John, and I procrastinate. (coughs) No, no, no. no. I'm
1: I'm going to interrupt you slightly because I once asked you what about the process of writing, and you said something that stuck with me for ever since. You said that you you keep writing until it makes sense to you, yeah, and then that's it. That's that's th- that's when it's done.
2: Well, thanks. You know, you know what? Uh, just to jump ahead, uh, I, I was I got to be I say good friends, uh, but you know, he was such a a mentor and a just a a regal person was John Jacobs, the teacher, and he said he was a good teacher because he had been a dunce by his own word in in high, in uh, in school. Mm. And so he never understood very clearly, or very rarely, what the teacher was saying. So when, as he taught uh, golf, he made it a point that he would explain it until it was very, very simple to him. And then he knew that he had learned, you know, how to communicate it best. And so, sort of simple, simple, similar for me. I, I'm a slow study. Uh, and but if I can get it to make sense to me, it probably will make sense the most because I've I've drained it of all well, the complexity. I think you're I think you're being be <laughs>
1: modest because, as I said at the beginning, you're certainly one of my favorite writers. Well, I mean, thanks. There's
2: yeah. some beautiful stuff you've done. Well, thanks. But that's interesting that that that, that you remember that phrase. I do think that is like the key for me is because it'll be really bad if I don't make. If it doesn't make sense to me, it takes me a long time to get to where it makes sense. I think I probably have a lot of ADD and stuff, and it just has to be, you know, really um, go through this whole process of, you know, um, checks and balances as far as whether it's logical. And then finally, I let it go. And if it makes sense to me, it usually is fairly yeah. clear. Yeah. You
1: mentioned Dan Jenkins, and a little anecdote about him was uh, I once bumped into Dan who Always greeted me with the, the same phrase whenever he met me was it, Well, what's pissing you off this <laughs> way? <Well>, that's sucking. <laughs> and I, and I, I bumped into him. Uh, I was heading to the, the gents, a uh-huh. major, and he was outside tubbing a cigarette. And I said, You know, as you do, I said, Well, hi, Danny, oh, what are you up to? And he goes, And he took a drag on the cigarette and he went, I'm writing. Yes. Yes,
2: you know, he was thinking about, you know,
1: it he was quick. I mean, Dan made it look very easy and very quick, but there was a lot of thought. Went there was into a it. lot
2: that went into it. He, he was one of those really cool guys who never let you see him sweat. Yes. But, but he definitely was always, and because he, he loved it so much, and he, and he loved being good at it. And I admired Dan, and uh, you know, I was so different from Dan, and, I, you know, obviously never cl- close to his good, but also the process was so different. He had that mind that he could then take it from what he was thinking and, and very quickly put it into print. Uh, and usually the things he was thinking about were those those special lines that carried his stories. You know, something really witty, something surprising, something just out, you know, uh, uh, out and out funny. Um, but those things don't come easily. But when he had them, he, they'd lock in and you'd watch him. T- I remember because I first met him when typewriter, we were using typewriters. and uh, And he would knock it out and... And pull it out and pull, pull, the, pull the, uh, the copy out and do very little to it. He, he was like the easiest edit ever because mm. he was so clean in his mind. So that was a gift. He was just mentally uh, ahead of everybody. I, to, I often wonder
1: how they did it back then because, I mean, the, the, when I write, I'm constantly deleting and editing and moving on the computer, which is easy. But on a typewriter, can you imagine?
2: Yes, I can imagine. And the, t- the computer saved me. It took me forever to write on the – I mean, I would – have a million drafts and, and cross everything out. I mean, it was ugly, uh, ugly process. <laughs> but uh, but Dan, you know, I've always admired those guys who, uh, but to your point, uh, there was rigor and there was effort and there was maybe a moment when it was ugly in his head, but he always made it, by the time it came out, it was pretty. Yeah. We're, we're gonna, I want to jump ahead a little bit. I mean, um, I think
1: you're you the only person I can think of that has written for Sports Illustrated, Golf Digest and the New York Times.
2: I have been employed by them, at least. Yeah. Well, maybe employed. Yeah, I, I was so fortunate because um, I did jump around, and sometimes jumping around can be chaotic and, and, and counterproductive to your career. But uh, I've always landed on my feet, I guess, after a change. And, uh, and the changes I made, you know, maybe I, you know, as I look back, uh, in hindsight, uh, they, they were sort of, uh, I won't say foolhardy, foolhardy but it was def- definitely risky. Uh, to, to change course uh, but I always felt like I just I mean I just felt so lucky to be in the business and the money was fine I mean I never felt underpaid I always felt like gosh I'm just lucky to to have this the lifestyle I have for doing something I really like but I knew my own deficiencies and I always felt like there were certain places where I wasn't quite a good fit yet but there were others that I might be a better fit not so much a better fit but I would learn more and get better. And I think each time I did, I mean, Sports Illustrated was a huge jump for me to go from Sacramento B. And I, I never quite felt comfortable that I was good enough. Um, and I wasn't probably in terms of the, you know, the mean yeah, of, of their, it's a great of, of, of the, oh, it was great. Yeah. And it, 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 gave me an inner standard of what is good. Mm-hmm. And it's high yeah. because of the guys that I was in with, the people I was, uh, you know, peer, I wouldn't say I was even a peer, but I was just included in, in their, in their company and, and, try to reach their level uh, Dan was just one of them you know there was there were so many Frank DeFord and Ron Fimwright and Curry uh, Kirk Kirkpatrick and you know these guys were giants then as I was there a little while Rick Riley came in and and, and we were good friends but uh, I, I've never approached Rick's level but I sort of feel like I drafted off Franz Lidz, another one you know Nobody ever talked about who was the best or better, but you just, I certainly knew that there was a a level that I was aspiring to, but just, and maybe I fell short of it, but trying to reach it made me better. And then I was so fortunate to go to Golf Digest because then I could focus on golf. Um, that was quite a cast of characters, wasn't it? I mean,
1: when you and I were there at the same time, I was. Well, you were one it. of them. I always, <laughs> yeah, I, I always liken it to the bar
2: scene in Star Wars. Not I mean, bad. absolute well, maniacs, some of them. It gives you a special appreciation for Jerry Tardy, who is, yeah. you know, he, he's sort of the uh, impresario of all that and brought everybody together. Uh, and he liked the spirit characters. The spirit characters. Uh, he himself is an extremely interesting guy, but outwardly very placid. And calm, and sort of the you know the eye of the storm, and he liked uh, he liked everything swirling around him, and he managed it, and that was the fun of it. But he, but I think the diversity and the and the slight craziness, the slight insanity, was was healthy. Yeah, yeah.
1: Through all of that, I mean, I think you I'm going to jump around a little bit here, but the um, your relationship with Tiger goes back a long way, and is probably a bit more intimate, if we can put it that way, than many writers. I mean, how would you describe that, and how would you
2: Describe where he is now in terms of. Wow. I mean, that's a big question. That's a big scope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, I, I was lucky to find out about Tiger at, uh, while he was quite young, you know, like 12, 13 years old, that he was winning all these, uh, Optimus World Juniors. And, um, obviously he was, uh, half African American. That was, that was something that was more rare in the game then than now. Uh, and was very curious about him. And also, we uh, uh, Golf Digest was in Connecticut, and I'm from California, and he was in California. And, you know, selfishly, I thought maybe that <laughs> could entail a trip to California. Um But, no, more than anything, I, I really was intrigued by uh, – because usually – and you've been through this, John. You know, there's so many prodigies, and so few of them really pan out yeah. to the same extent. So you, you sort of get skeptical about, oh, well, you know, this guy's going to be the world beater or whatever. Um But there was – whatever. It was just kismet. Yeah, I mean, it, his, his dad would, would come
1: out with his, you know, in retrospect, completely outrageous statements, but they were all true well, in the uh, end. In some know? cases,
2: underestimated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, amazingly. But yeah, I did. So I got their number. I called the house and uh, talked to Earl. Earl was handling everything and he said, well, come out and, we'll, and play golf with us. And we played at a place called Cota de Casa. Um, and Tiger was 14. And, um, you know, he was very shy and I think to some extent, resistant of more media, even at that age. Uh, so, you know, very few words were exchanged. We hit, we hit off the first tee and we walked out the fairway and it's a little small talk. And, but very quickly, uh, his love of the game and he could tell that I loved the game. Um, you know, there was a little bond right there and just on golf, you know, I mean, he's a nice kid. He really was a nice kid, quiet, uh, and, uh, but, but bright and, and kind of slyly funny and very proud of his golf, but never, but never uh, braggadocious, never. Uh, he never, you know, talked about how good he was. He was always talking about getting better. And he was interested in, in the the bigger structure of the game, the pros and, and the history of the game. So I was a source of that for him to some extent. So that was our bond, really. Uh, I wouldn't call it, uh, you know, the closest bond, but it was a good golf bond. And then it became something where, you know, his parents both thought, uh, you know, I was going to, be able to write about him now with a little bit more familiarity. So I wrote more and more stories about him, and you know the process with Tiger was always he was always very punctual and he was hard to draw out sometimes to talk uh, about detail. He, he was sort of trained to give answers that were um, yeah. There's a glibness about they were they were they, they yeah. were glib and they, but they were factual. You know, and he didn't like going uh, deeper. I think part of it just because he knew it would just open up all these, uh, you know, um, rabbit holes that, that, that uh, writers would want to go through. So it was a way of managing his time as well. But, you know, I was around him enough that you start, you know, just by osmosis almost sensing his life and, and, and his goals and, and his, uh, his, his conceptions of golf, what he saw. And I, I was always fascinated to just talk to him about Nicholas or, uh, Great players that he knew quite a bit about, Johnny Miller, and even players that weren't even considered, you know, great players, but maybe had a particular skill that he was interested in. Like, I remember he was very interested in Brad Faxon and how he putted. Uh, so he was looking ahead, like, I'm gonna try to basically create this composite of a great golfer by borrowing the best things from everybody uh, that I can, that fit me. And I loved his teachers. Rudy Duran was great. John Anselmo was—he was kind of unsung because he was a little more behind the scenes, and he passed away. And Butch Harmon succeeded him. But John was really, I think, pivotal to Tiger and wonderful source for me too, because he, he had been a really good player, played with Sneed and Hogan when they came to the California Swing, and he wasn't that good, obviously, but he really knew the top of the game. So all those things were, you know, things that I drew from whenever I could write about Tiger, and I didn't have to bother him that much. But then to start seeing what he was doing was amazing. You know, what he actually, you know, all these things were idealized. Oh, this guy's got it all. Well, let's see if he can actually deliver. And
1: man, could he deliver? It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like you, I'm sure I get asked a lot, you know, who was better, Jack or Tiger? Mm-hmm. And you can't, you have to yeah. differentiate. I mean, Nicholas's record is better. Yeah. But Tiger played golf better than I think anyone has ever played it. I mean, and I would, yeah,
2: I would agree with that, and I, I think I would uh, account for it a couple of ways. Number one, the game has progressed; uh, the equipment's better, certainly. Techniques are better. People build on the past. Tiger was building on Jack. Jack wasn't on building on Tiger, um, and so I think he he's a more complete player than Jack. Um, it's very close, though. I, I I never want to underestimate Jack. No, uh, at how good he must have been. I didn't see him when he was twenty years old. And, you know, you hear it, uh, just to digress slightly, there are some players, and I talked about it this week actually here at Brookline, that were better when they were 18 than they ever were again. And that 18 was great. I mean, Crenshaw to this day says, I was better at 18 than I ever was, and that includes winning those That's Masters later on. Yeah. But the other guy who's sort of considered sort of a cautionary tale is Eddie Pierce, who at 18 was better than Crenshaw was when he was 18. Yeah. Uh, and that because they were contemporaries yeah, he was a complete prodigy and and it. crenshaw talks about it. he was the best junior i ever saw and never progressed beyond that for a lot of reasons but so that could have befallen fallen tiger but it, it didn't he just kept getting better uh and i think that's maybe his greatest strength is the ability to continually improve and sometimes he's been questioned about how he's gone about it why you change your swing and you know yeah i was gonna ask that mm-hmm. i mean i mean the you, you you must wonder you think if he just left it alone you know, I think you know? sometimes it's exaggerated how much he changed yeah. it. I think the change with Hank was, was the pretty dramatic. Yeah. But everything else, I've always found refinement. You know, I, I just thought he had such a wonderful rhythm and natural athletic grace that he never quite lost, no matter the swing technique he was using. Um, he wanted to learn shots. He wanted to learn strategies. He wanted to learn, um, you know, the ability to play badly well when he didn't have his yeah. game how to adjust within around. Yeah. he knew there was more to it than it just it was hitting all nuance it yeah. wasn't just hitting great shots it wasn't just when i played well it's like how do i play week to week and how do i win tournaments yeah. so he was going to a level that was deeper than anybody else and i think it was because of his start he you know he had such a uh, a you know early experience with winning tournaments you know by the time he's five six years old he's winning tournaments so that in itself was an art how do you win a tournament you know apart from hitting it well there's all these other things and he knew all those things and it, and as he grew older he wanted to go deeper so i think he actually is the most sophisticated golfer ever you know even more than jack as smart as jack is jack had a later start in the game jack beat his contemporaries more easily i think than uh, especially in teenage years than I mean, tiger was always clever enough to dominate at each
1: level before he moved on that was well. very
2: smart too you know he never jumped ahead he you know take your wins keep building that that memory bank of always winning and then when people said you know god he's arrogant he says second place is loss. His, his second place sucks you know that was actually I think his earned mentality you know I'm the best guy here how do I make sure I beat all these guys in a game where it's very hard to win all the time and that's where I think he separated himself because, you know, on Sunday when he had a lead, it was over in his mind. You know, just hang on to it in a way that I've learned how to hang on to it since I was five years old. And that's the hardest thing I think, John, maybe you'll agree, you know, to do in golf is, is to close it out on Sunday. You know, oh, winning. Yeah, hard. winning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you it's can a be, cliche, but it's You hard. can contend yeah. forever. Can you actually get to that special place that wins it over and over? And, you know, Jack did a lot and nobody did it more than Tiger. How did your relationship with Tiger? Go well,
1: over the years. I mean, it's, yeah. I'm sure there's been plenty of ups and downs. I mean, he didn't give much away, but you probably got more out of it than than well. Much yeah, anything. I didn't.
2: I hated looking at it as like you know, this is a finite thing and it's not going to last. And but inevitably, his life got so complicated and his time got so um, you know demanding he just couldn't give me the same kind of it, it couldn't be the same as it as it had been and I understood that. I, ne- I don't think I pushed too much uh, and he I think was quite generous in the compartmentalized times that I had with him as he became a pro and became successful in Tiger Mania changed everything you know every October he'd sit down he had a contract with Golf Digest and we'd sit down and, and do a long piece mm-hmm. four or five thousand words each year and uh, those were good pieces because, mm. you know, he opened up as much as he was willing to at that time. And on golf, he didn't hold back very much. I always felt like I got to the, not to the bottom, but close to where he was in his game each year and how that was evolving. So those pieces were fulfilling for me. And I, I hope they're a good record of how Tiger progressed during those years. Uh, but then, you know, he got tired of media altogether. Yeah. And as he got more, uh, wealthy, you know, it just became a distraction. And, you know, I was, somewhat of a casualty of that, and I understood why. Well, plus he had things to hide. Well, that later, you know, uh, but I, you know, I'm going all the way like up to 2009. He was hiding, I guess, those things, whatever. I never really delved. He, he was very discreet, I thought, uh, you know. I mean, he was not a prude or anything, uh, but, you know, his private life was his life. And and he was, you know, especially once he, he married, you know, I didn't delve into that. He kept all that private. I think because his life had been so scrutinized and so public for so long, he was hyper uh uh vigilant about keeping it private mm-hmm. and so but you know i knew his mom well and uh, she's a wonderful woman uh would give me insight into tiger earl of course had a lot of insights so that comp- composite and you know i talked to his teachers a lot butch was great uh, hank was great um so you know i worked the edges Having felt like I know the the middle, the subject pretty well, but I didn't have the same intimacy, you know, not intimate, that's the wrong word, but the same close kind of contact with Tiger. And then once everything happened and the contract with Golf Digest ended, uh, you know, I stopped writing about him, uh, at least for, well, I didn't stop writing about him, but I stopped having contact. I still wrote about him. And then, you know, a big, a big decision for me was helping Hank with his book, uh, The Big Miss and that i knew was going to be you know and i i you know it it was a hard decision uh but i made it because i thought was it uh, it kind of like your live golf decision well gosh (laughs) we'll get to that in a bit we'll we'll talk about yeah well i guess yeah i was certainly weighing a lot of things and there was certainly downside to both uh i hope uh i hope it was a more in my opinion you know (laughs) I don't know ethical decision than the live golf one, but people this, weren't getting their heads. But out, I don't want to yeah. judge. I, I, I just felt like uh, personally, it was a it's probably the hardest professional decision I ever made.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've read that book. I mean, like millions of golf fans have. I mean, it, to me, it, it was the the reaction to it was overblown, and it was
2: primarily a golf book. Well, I think the context was Tiger had just gone through this horrible personal scandal, and and that's what people wanted to know about. Yeah. And the reason it got to number one bestseller in the New York Times was because of the curiosity about that. And there was nothing really about that except, you know, how Tiger was reacting to it, uh, through Hank's eyes. Um, it was, it was all about Hank's, um, more than curious, fascination with what greatness is about, you know, what yeah. it, what it took to be Tiger Woods. Um, And sure, uh, there's a good debate about whether he betrayed some kind of code about what teachers should talk about with their, with their players. I think the defining line I always try to keep, uh, as we were doing it was, is it about golf? Did it affect his golf? Because his golf is a historic thing. And to me, the, the central, I guess, um, reason to write it was this was, this guy was on an arc to be beyond anybody who we'd ever seen in golf. And this happened to him. And that's the big miss, because he never had any real big misses in his life until yeah. then yeah. that that changed the course of it, the trajectory of it. He still is great. He certainly was going to pass Nicholas. Uh, and it just didn't happen. And I think recording that and, and, and what led to it, uh, not personally so much, but the way his career um, was distracted by it, I think that's golf history too. Yeah. I mean, I'm of
1: the opinion that um, there were circumstances that out with his control that stopped him being quite as good as he could have been and great as he was. I mean, the equipment for a start, I mean, the equipment Mm. made it more difficult to separate yourself. If they'd been, you know, the the modern ball and the modern and the hybrid, you know, which takes away the long irons, all, all that kind
2: of stuff. Well,
1: he I mean, talked. He would never have lost. If it, perhaps, he perhaps
2: he talked about you know. I wouldn't mind if it went back to you know, a lot of balls and persimmon woods and forged irons, uh, you know, forged blades, because if I am better, uh, and he was saying hypothetically, let's presume I'm a little better, more have more ability, those things will uh, be more distinctive. Those skills will be more distinctive with that kind of equipment. So, I also think he, um, I give. Cr- Jack, tremendous credit for managing his career and his life. It's not easy being at the yeah, top. I mean, five kids and all the rest of it. Yeah. Everything, yeah. you know, and, and finding balance somehow. And I remember Tiger talking about it. He goes, and it was prescient, you know, way back in like 2000, maybe maybe before that, maybe 98, I can see now that the biggest challenge I want to have is having the kind of balance that Jack was able to achieve. So, you know, intuitively he knew there was a challenge ahead. And I think, um, you know, Tiger went at it harder than Jack did. And maybe he's become... And this is just a theory of mine, but a cautionary tale, unconsciously perhaps, to the stars of today who say, Look, I admire Tiger, and it's amazing how how much they hold him up and revere him for what he could do in golf. It gives me more respect for what he did in golf. Uh, but the cost, is it worth it? Yeah. You know, and, and On I, a human level, yeah. On a human level, on a life a quality level. Uh, and I, I see... This, uh, you know, I see, I sense an inner breaking system, you know, that someone like Rory might have because Rory has all the ability in the world. I don't think golf's everything to Rory either. Right. That's what I mean. And and if it's not, maybe it's because he's told himself it's not healthy for yeah. it to be. Yeah. And and maybe Tiger is a case study of that. But then again, what Tiger achieved and the way he's admired as a golfer is, is, uh, you know, is, is up there only with Hogan and Jack. And so that's something that I think everybody would aspire to as well. I mean, I feel lucky like you do, I'm sure,
1: to, to have seen him play, you know, Pebble Beach in 2000 comes to mind. But the, the one that's going to stay with me uh, the most came near the end, if you can call it that, if he if he is in fact mm-hmm. near the end, which I'm, it looks like he, like he is. Yeah, we've I mean, said that.
2: We don't know. But
1: I, yes. I watched him play with my, our friend Mike Clayton. I walked around Royal Melbourne at the last President's Cup. And watch Tiger Woods on that golf course, in a golf course that played to his strengths and not to the, the distance bollocks that we watch every week. He was he was a mile better than everybody else yeah.
2: on that golf course. I wasn't there, but I did watch it carefully on TV, and I've never been to Royal Melbourne uh uh, in person it was a uh, beautiful thing to watch it really was that golf course just kind of uh, enhanced his art his yeah. artistry yeah and uh, and it and it also further separated him from his peers and you I, saw I, I, you saw I, the difference and, and you used you know, the right word there i i bang on about this but i think golf at its best is is an art not a, not a science absolutely i mean i think to this day uh people's favorite golfers are the artistic ones a so was an artist we're gonna to get to Seve in a minute well done lee trevino is an artist yeah you know jack in his own way you know he's he's not like an aesthetic uh uh kind of uh subject to a lot of people, but as far as bringing all the elements of golf together in a way that you know was the most effective, that's an art too yeah. so jack to me he's an art an art. he's like a great general he he, he used all his forces incredibly efficiently yeah you you mentioned savvy and you blew it for my you know
1: my aspiring podcast host career. I was going to segue from Tiger into Seve by... that. You don't need t- any help. you the, got a great podcast. The, old, the old tale of, um, you know, Se- um, Seve and Ollie playing nine holes at Augusta with Tiger. Uh-huh. And all
2: Tiger did was watch what they did with their short he game. He loved those guys. And that's left
1: what, after nine holes to go and practice That's what, what I love
2: about Tiger. He never thought he was there. He always thought there was something I can take from somebody who's better than me at something else. And he loved Seve. And and he and Ollie became close because uh, they both work with Butch. And he always talked about you know, Ollie chips this way and, and this is a shot I learned from Ollie and he's the best and, you know, I always loved that he deferred and did not have such a, such an ego that he had to be the best at everything. He wanted to be the best, but he knew getting there meant, you know, borrowing from People who were the best at other parts of the game, and there's so many parts of the game, and he understood that. Yeah, I
1: mean, you'd have to have quite an ego to to look at Seve's short game and think that he could be better than that, mate. Well, you know, <laughs> you,
2: there are Seve's. You know, it's amazing. I think Seve's incredible, but you know, I look at Patrick Reed and I go, yeah, yeah, pretty close. And Tiger in his moments, and Phil, Phil, incredible. And he had some shots that nobody's had. So, but Seve, there was a flair to him as well, and it was beautiful uh, how how he, uh, I don't know. He carried it off in this way that was just like a, a great performer. Yeah, I mean, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm here to confess that I loved Sevi uh, in so many ways, uh, b- but primarily for his golf. I mean, I think you felt the same. And you had a, you know, again, a connection with him. The, you know, you're, I don't know how good your Spanish speaking is, but it's better than mine. <laughs> so you could talk to him on, you know, in a different way, certainly. And, and I know you went to Spain, you know, on more than one occasion to see him and near the end. And I watched the, the Sevi movie. Yeah. On the plane on the way over here, we're, we're to be clear, we're, we're sitting here in the media center at the Country Club during the the U.S. Open. But And I watched the – and and I had tears in my eyes again. Mm. I mean, and you, you're you on there uh, more than once. And you kind of broke
2: down at one point. I didn't know that. I haven't seen it yet. I remember he getting had a lot of had effect on people, though, didn't he? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> David White was the producer, and uh, he's great, by the way. He does that uh, the Profiles of a Champion. Mm. Those yeah. are great. Yeah. Those are great collection of – Open, the Open Champions, talk, the Chronicles of the Champion. Yeah. Excuse me, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, he told me that. Hey, Langer cried, you know. Yeah, he did. He <laughs> did. He did. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> cried, and I'm like, oh, I'm not gonna cry. But uh, at, at a certain moment, yeah, uh, Seve's last year was so sad, and I was very privileged to see him at his house, and it was really poignant, and it was really uh, emotional for him, and at that moment. Because of his his injury to his brain, he didn't have control of the portion of the brain that controls emotions very well. So he was crying intermittently throughout the interview. Um, and I didn't cry at that time because, you know, I was just, I was sorry. I was bringing, but he kept saying, it's all right. It's all right. It's good. This is good. I can't control it, but it's good to live this again because uh, this is the best part of my life. It was really, really uh, a thrill, you know, but also uh, tragic to know it was ending. Uh, at that moment, when we were talked, which was uh, was that 2010, the summer of 2000. No, I was May of 2010. I saw him, and he was planning to go to the Open Championship and play in the four hole yeah. Champions Challenge. You can imagine the reception he would have. Got. Uh, you know, I kept thinking uh, the most emotional I'd seen in in some in a situation where you know a great champion came back to a to a uh, you know an arena was was Ali at, at the Olympics. And, you know, this wouldn't have been as big in terms of the number of people, but I think it would have had the same impact for Seve at St. Andrews in front of his fans with everybody knowing what he's been going through physically and, and how it's, you know, he was gone from the game, obviously as a player. It would have been what a moment. And, um, he was looking forward to that, but his doctors advised him against it. Hope against hope that he would able perhaps to survive what he was going through. And then as I learned later, you know, there was really regret because it was inevitable he was, he was, he was gonna pass. Yeah. And so that should have been the moment, yeah. you know, and it didn't It should have been a kind of, what the hell, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that was a wonderful day and, uh, Sebby was great to me. Uh, he was great to my dad. Hmm. Um, in fact, in 88, uh, I didn't get to cover that many majors as the lead writer at Sports Illustrated, but I, in 88 at, at Royal Lytham, I did the, the, the Open Championship. And as you may remember, they had a horrible storm, I think it was on Saturday or yeah, Sunday. It, and it, an extra day. Yeah, yeah. and so it, it ended on Monday, which was deadline day for Sports yeah. Illustrated, um, w- which normally they wouldn't have been able to handle, but since, uh, you know, it's five hours ahead. I had a chance to get it in with the final round, but I couldn't go out and walk. I was riding the whole time and I'm a slow rider. So my dad, I gave him my press pass and hope they aren't able to forgive me (laughs) 40 years later here, but 30 years later, but, um, he took notes and he was, and he was right there and he's in a couple of photos in the background when Seve's chipping and stuff. Uh, but he loved Seve. He was very proud as a Spaniard, of course. And, uh, I don't know that, that created a connection. And, uh, and when I did go see Sevi after that in like 1990, I just uh, – Jerry Tardy said, go to Spain. you know. And I was trying to arrange it and I couldn't get a hold of anybody. And they said, well, just go to Pedreña and talk to the natives and talk to his relatives. And so I, I did. I showed up at the club and then I was sitting on a bench. It was early in the morning. It was like 7.30. And here comes Sevi in his pajama bottoms. And a t shirt with a sandwich to this little practice green. Yeah, yeah. And, and he sees me and he takes, you know, like, he's, he's, did I wake up? Is this a dream? You know, who are you? Why are you here? You know, he said, what are you doing? And, uh, I said, I'm here to talk to everybody around you. He goes, well, you should have called me. I said, I tried, you know, and, uh, and he was mad. Yeah. You know, this was an infringement. Yeah, yeah. And he kind of just sat there for about, he chipped a few, didn't look at me, and then he said, all right, come over. You know, and then he was great.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I Uh I was lucky enough to go to Uh Padrinha a couple of times as well. Once to do instruction stuff with him, and second time to a long Q and A thing for Digest. But the first time um, we we did all the instruction stuff, and we we were the photographer and I were going to leave the next day, but we had time to play the course in the morning. Oh, wonderful! And he was going to play with us. Oh God! And I'm thinking, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. But we woke up and it was blowing an absolute gale, and he said, no, no. but but we still played. That's where okay, we go yeah. all the way around. It's near the end. I can't remember the course that well, but it's 15th or 16th, a mm-hmm. short hole with a huge bank around the green, which was sheltered. Uh-huh. So we get on the tee and we arrive and we look up. And of course, he's chipping around the green and he sees us and he steps back to let us hit now. There's pressure in golf. No kidding. Now, let me tell you, is pre- that that's the worst pressure. I'm thinking, yeah, I've done if that. I don't hit this green, Seve's going to watch me chip. I mean, I, that's the last thing in the world I wanted. But anyway, I got it on the green. But he, he was great. He was impressed. And, yeah. That is pressure. They, and they know it.
2: Yeah. And sometimes they're passionate about it, and sometimes they're, yeah. they're bastards
1: about it. Yeah. But, but he, and he, he was a complete rogue as well. I mean, that was one thing about the movie, was that it didn't hide nor did his family try to disguise the, yeah. the womanising aspect of his I mean he was a great one for the yeah. ladies I heard it
2: was a complete uh, a very complete portrait yes mm-hmm.
1: and uh, there was one time I was at a tournament somewhere I can't remember I was sitting in a restaurant and I looked up and there was Seve coming in with a lady not his wife and he clocks me in the corner and he comes across and he looks at me and he goes I'm not here. <laughs> and I said, fair enough. And Of course, I went along because I knew that I would get a good interview next time he saw me, which I did.
2: Well, let me say uh, to all of John's fans out here, first of all, uh, you know, there's a lot of golf riders out here, and um, you know, I respect all of them. They all have different perspectives and different skills. And John is distinctive because he was a really good player, number what, one. Boys
1: is this, the, the, the operative word. Well, and he yeah. played with a
2: lot of these guys as they grew up, and there's a respect there that he really knows what he's talking about. And I, I notice it when I'm around John and he's around other players, they talk to him differently than they talk to other writers. Uh, yeah, and, usually with swear words. No, well, that, it, 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 it's, 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 there's an acceptance and a respect there. And, and I think that's because of that, you're getting a different perspective, uh, from John than you would from, from other golf writers. And, and that's his gift. And especially when he did all that instruction stuff at golf. Digest, uh, he was closer to the players than any of us golf writers ever were because that was a safe space, don't you think, John? Yeah, definitely. They, yeah. they, they definitely talked to the instruction guy mm-hmm. in a different way than yeah. they talked to the
1: feature writer, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Mm-hmm. You know. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, you, you mentioned that. I think I probably told this story before, but it's absolutely true. When I arrived at Golf Digest in 1988 to be mm-hmm. in charge of the instruction section of the magazine, the the average handicap of the average reader was 178 mm-hmm. And when I left eight years later, it was 17.8. Yes. You know, so it's very difficult well, to make uh, a there's difference. there's a lot of story,
2: You know, golf instruction in the magazine, I read it religiously, yeah. and I admire when it's done well. But golf's such a personal thing, and I don't think it's actually poor instruction. I think people are poor learners. Yeah. Um and they're stubborn learners. They need, They need. I think most people need a one-on-one relationship with a with a teacher that will hold yeah. them accountable. Yeah. A magazine doesn't hold you accountable. No, I mean, Bob Toskey, who wrote the yes, magazine. I know this story, yeah. He
1: once said, you know, yeah. you can never learn golf through the pages of a
2: magazine, yeah, which well, I you, thought was you, a bit
1: rich coming from him. But you,
2: you cleaned up that quote pretty well, too. Yeah. And, but yes. <laughs> but Bob was a great player yes. and a great teacher. But, you know, sure, the magazine was a way of, of spreading the game and, and and getting, I learned a lot from the magazine at times. But the, the problem is, of course, you read one article that sends you on one direction, and you have to stay on that direction for it to be productive. Yes. But then you're so suggestive; you read another article, and you try that too, and pretty it, soon you're you're screwed up it and ruined me forever. Eventually, I, I tried to stay apart from it, but yeah, it, 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 it can't it, do it. It got you subliminally. But yeah. you know Ken Bowden, who's also a great player, and, yeah. and, and did uh, a lot with Jack. He said it, it, was, it was totally counterproductive. And he, and he was a tough guy. He couldn't keep it out of his head either. He knew too much. You guys are the men who knew too much. Yeah, yeah. Or not enough. Yeah. Sure. yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I don't know if there was any
1: more you want to add on Sevi, but I, uh, my next kind of question was we probably touched on the two that would be top of the charts, but who have been your favorites mm. to watch and to talk to and to write
2: about? Um, well, I was very fortunate. As a kid to just get an autograph from Arnold Palmer when I was six years old and see Arnold in the 66 Open, which was tragic, of course, yeah. and see him in San Francisco when he came through and then got to know him a little bit, uh, and had some nice moments with him. I always felt like Arnold was, you know, the overused word, truly an icon. And I, I never felt, I never felt, uh, uh comfortable enough to, 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 uh, to, to feel personal. You know, with him. I mean, he was wonderful to me, but he was—he was was just uh, unreachable in that regard. But uh, so my favorites, and he he can be difficult uh, in terms of letting people uh, close to him. Has been Lee Trevino, and and I've been just fortunate. I, I don't try to, I don't try to push my way into Lee's life ever. But when he chooses to give, he's he's the givingest. Yeah, he's he's wonderful. And and I think he's also use the word artistic. He is the most artistic golfer and he's thought about it the most and he can articulate it beautifully. And he's funny Mm. and he's got a million stories of really authentic, very unique upbringing in the game. And he's just, you know, and he admires all the great players and he's a wonderful analyst of what made him special. The better the player, the more he knows. He, He knows a tremendous amount about Tiger. Tiger, I thought it was very interesting, uh, just that little clip recently yeah, where he, he was there with Charlie, and you could tell, I was looking at Tiger going, hey, Charlie, this is a moment. Mm. You're know, you a lucky guy. You know, even though Charlie, it wasn't that complex of a lesson, but no. you're in Lee Trevino's presence, and he's the best, you know, and and I think that was really sincere. Uh, so I feel so fortunate to have had nice times with Lee, um, mostly toward the end of his career, but also in the, in his sort of... Senior Prime. That was really interesting. That was a great time. Um, and I, you know, I kind of grew up, I remember my favorite, I think, golf telecast as far as being, you know, pulled into it and, and remembering almost to this day a lot of the details was the 71 playoff with uh, Nicholas and Marion. Yeah. And I was pulling for Trevino even though I love Nicholas. Just like I used to, you know, pull for Palmer, uh, (laughs) <laughs> even though well, I love I, Nicholas. I mean, I was the same with
1: Trevino. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I saw I was there when he chipped in at Muirfield. Oh, yes, in to be there, I mean, amazing, yeah. And I, I look at my little green autograph book yeah, that yeah. I've still got at home yeah. with I had when I was a kid, and,
2: and he's in it more than anybody else because I would keep going back. Oh, and he it, kept doing know. it. Well, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. You know, I watched those old films. He was, you know, very gregarious. I think after a while, that worn him as well. And then he had the very unfortunate... Um, occurrence of lightning that really changed yeah, yeah. his abilities he still found a way to play great and he won that pga in 84 which was at 44 that was almost as big a miracle as jack at yeah. 86 masters but uh i just i he's he's a uh, he's a, he's to me he's like if he would you know want to share everything he's the greatest source of golf oh. alive well you yeah I, you hmm? have Gone through you, even to try and get him to, yeah. to sit there, and he and he won't
1: do it. I can't, yeah, no, uh, I know. he doesn't know me from Adam, unfortunately. Well, but, he
2: knows who you are,
1: yeah. but I'm, I'm the little kid from near Dunbar, in East yeah, sure. and he's where. And he had a contract at 72 Open at Muirfield. He was contracted to a company called Green Tree. Oh yeah, they made the he, Green Tree was on his bag at Muirfield, and I'm not so sure sure Green Tree clubs were in his bag because they were awful things. But um, he was, and he opened the factory at Dunbar. I was there and watched him open the factory that's now owned by a brewery company, but uh, that's where they made the golf clubs, was in basically my hometown, sounds, and he was there. And, I you know, I wish I wish I could sit well, down with him. I would love it. <laughs>
2: well, I hope there'll be a time. He jokes about the contracts he used to have. Yeah, I'll the bet. Worst ever, Faultless, Rawlings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, Green Tree would be on yeah. that list, I'm sure. But he made a lot of his own clubs, and he loves messing with clubs. And he, as he said, he's wrecked a million clubs, but he's also learned a hell of a lot about what club making is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, I think, but safe to say that we seem to be drawn to the same kind of play Yeah, John. Well, you yeah. know, you know, we do have a, uh, a nice affinity for the uh, common affinity for the game. I've, I've enjoyed being your friend for a lot of years. Bigger picture, that's where I'm going to get to next. And this is maybe this is a big question: is
1: the game now at the professional level? What do you think? Are we, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? What is it, or is it just getting different?
2: You know, I, I, lean towards, um, different and, uh, worse. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> in other words. Well, it's less interesting to me. I yeah. I, I, this is not at all an evaluation of the players and their ability. No, no, think that's a different subject. I yeah. think they, they have greater abilities just through the evolution of learning from the past and mm-hmm. the way that the human being, even in, in the small, uh, sample size of the next generation continues to get stronger and better and, um, there's just so many uh, training uh, advantages now. You just see guys. You learn that it's athletics. I mean, yeah. it's, it's what can your machine, what can your human machine do? Um, and the human machines that these guys are building for themselves now are are superior. They, they have more flexibility, more speed, more strength. Uh, that translates to better golf if you have good technique. Yeah. And the technique's tremendous. Uh, I think the way the equipment has evolved, it's. It's, uh, reduced the test. It's, it's asked less of them in terms of hitting variety, having a variety of shots. And, uh, you can power through the game in a way that you couldn't when the ball didn't go so far. Uh, and so, you know, bomb and gouge, I, I think Mike Zaturin and, and Mike Johnson came up with that. Mm. It's a great phrase because, it also kind of conveys the brutishness of the way the game is played. Now, you know, it's okay to hit it in the rough and on most setups in professional golf. And the, uh, analytics show that you're at an advantage, let's say, hypothetically from, let's say 120 yards from the, from the green in the rough, then you would be from the middle of the fairway, 160 yards in the rough. So that's going to breed, you know, a lot of, uh, very aggressive driving. That's not particularly accurate. Uh, and, I think probably the greatest test in the game is can you be a long straight driver? That should be rewarded beyond everything else. I mean, it used to be a lot harder to do that, though. No, obviously, it? and the guys who did it could separate themselves from the others, and that's what Jack did. Lee was not particularly long, but he was extremely straight. So you could say he was one of the top drivers, and it was no uh, accident they were among the best players and the drive is still very important but in a different way so uh, you know that's why I favor and I know you do too you know some kind of uh, reduction mm-hmm. in distance for the golf ball or for the clubs and I think the U S J and the RNA are taking that seriously for various reasons sustainability the golf course footprint all that but also the style of play and I saw an interesting is it Steve Otto who works for the RNA yes interesting quote in one of Mike uh, and uh, articles recently he says perhaps in 10 years the top 10 in golf uh, on the world ranking, will be a different type player than than, the, than yeah? it is now. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a good goal because yeah. I think that the player that we see now is a little uh, uh, not one dimensional, but not enough dimensions. One and a half. Yeah, one and a half. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I just want to see. I want to see them tested to their to their limit so that they can show us all their brilliance. And right now, they're not being asked to show all their brilliance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I,
1: for me, it almost, Certainly, one of the bigger tragedies of this is is what has been what what's done to the golf courses sure. for the pro, for the pros to play on. I mean, this week I've, I've had a wander out there mm-hmm. and I've stood on the tee and looked down fairways and I have stood behind greens and looked back, and it's so obvious that the the rough lines are are not where they should be. You know, they are not where they were originally, and it can't be. No, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. that exactly yeah. that's my point. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so we have to compromise so much with the great architecture. On this is a great old golf course. But it's it's been messed it's been messed with because of the equipment and and I always say this that it's can you think of another sport that has messed with the venue to, shoot the yeah, to suit the equipment rather ball. Than the other yeah, way yeah, around yeah, yeah. you
2: know no everything everybody else just changes the ball and uh, obviously you know there's going to be progress in terms of distance and um, so golf course probably would have evolved but not this dramatically and not this quickly and the best laboratory the best measuring stick is a St Andrews and we're going to learn that next year. Uh you know, you know it better than anyone. Uh, where there's tees off the golf course now, right? Yeah, yeah. St- they, they yeah. play five different courses.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when so, I first wrote that, Peter Dawson at RNA was not impressed.
2: <laughs> okay, I bet he was impressed. Yeah. It was too good. Yeah. It was bothered him because it yeah. was too much truth in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean,
1: so where do where do we go? Where, what what do you see? How does it develop in the next ten years? I-, I worry about where they're going to play in ten years' time if nothing's done.
2: Well, it'll be okay. You know, I, I think this is for purists like us. I- I've re- I've revised my view on this. I- I- sure, I- ideally, I would like to see you know all that artistry brought out, but it doesn't ruin the game, and it certainly, for most fans, who like Bryson has shown. Mm. They actually like you know they like seeing it go as far as it yeah can. I get that yeah and so it, golf's never probably been as popular as it is so it's it is better for business actually to have a simpler and you know we've seen this in a lot of sports I mean baseball's gotten this way uh, the pitchers are so powerful now uh, so so overpowering now that uh, you know the average hitter is hitting to like two thirty uh, and not to get all into baseball but yeah. you know two eighty used to be considered kind so of so you're basically you're hitting the Thing nobody can two and hit and it. Half times out of ten, nobody so, can hit yeah, it. They can't yeah. put it in play. It's, yeah. it's hurt the game, I think. But at yet, the stands are filled yeah. more than they were when I was a kid. So a lot of it's marketing, and 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 you know, I can see why the PGA Tour is hesitant um, to say uh, you know approve a rollback because this is this is working. Uh, so it, the best player will still win. It it just. Most of the time, I think uh, I don't think the game's been compromised. I just think it's been dumbed down a little bit, mm-hmm. and uh, but it's it's not fatal. Uh, and there's more offense in every sport. You know, a lot of purists in basketball will say the three-point line has ruined the game, and and football. You know, they're saying, well, they protect the quarterback too much. There's too much scoring. What about the art of defense? And but defense a little dull to watch for the average fan. So you have to market to the to the consumer and. Uh, I think we're in the minority as you know, sort of golf. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, we've kind of lost uh, the nerds, whatever. <laughs> yeah, we've
1: kind of lost it, you know, especially uh-huh. where I come from, and it's windy on the links. And
2: yeah, you know, well, that's hit, ideal.
1: A guy can hit a great shot to thirty feet, but he The the, yeah. the average fan's not seeing that as as brilliant. Anymore. You have to
2: remember that you began and, and grew up on the ideal golf surface, and you know what makes great golf sometimes is the land. Yeah, you know, and and you had the perfect land. Um, although it's interesting, the greatest golfers don't necessarily develop on links. No, because they're not playing links when yeah, they. And it's yeah. not necessarily an advantage.
1: Because no, right? You, yeah, you, yeah. You, you develop a might a very short swing, and mm-hmm. that's not. You don't want to show it, right? Well,
2: if you're going to play professionally, you're going to play around the world, where you know the golf courses are not links, and you have to carry the ball. And there's so, it, so there's counter, there, there's there's disadvantages. But in terms of the pure game, you grew up in the perfect place, and like you said, a thirty, a shot to thirty feet is a really intelligent, wonderfully executed shot. And here it would be, hey, that's a thirty footer. That's no good. Yeah. So, uh, I I just think uh, you know, every every environment produces its own sense of its own greatness. Uh, and uh, you know, in America right now, uh, the greatness I see is that somebody can bomb at three seventy and and hit their sandwich to two feet. <laughs> you know, uh, that that's incredible talent. Yeah, it, it just can be a little monotonous. Yeah. Uh, that's all. Yeah.
1: As we're here, I wasn't really going to talk about this because it's not particularly topical at the moment. But we're at the Country Club. Mm. We're in nineteen ninety nine. There was a very controversial riding mm. up. The, the Ryder Cup, I mean, over the course of your career, it's gone from nothing to the biggest thing outside the majors. Mm-hmm. What have you seen?
2: Is it good, bad? Is it a mixture? What, what do you reckon to the Ryder Cup? I think it's good that people idealize the Ryder Cup as pure golf. And it's so ironic to say in this, in this time and moment, uh, there's no money involved. Mm. It's love of the game. It's uh, it's the spirit of competition. It's camaraderie. It's all these beautiful things that we carry in golf as uh, everyday players that we want to see. And so the Ryder Cup reflects that better than anything else. Um, it's become an incredibly overblown extravaganza. Yeah, but I get it. it it's it, it's also supporting. Uh, the, yeah, especially certainly. in the past, the European tour. oh, absolutely. So it, it had to be, and and, and it's been, ex- and because I think it's reached its peak for me in terms of its meaning. There was a time when the Europeans and you you were in the heart of this. Um, their whole identity was, and their whole survival was based on success in the writer Cup. Yeah. It meant everything. And then you bring all the linguistic stuff about you know Europe versus America, and especially Great Britain versus America, uh, uh, and you know the. Uh, the colonists and the, uh, uh, you know, all all the all the history and it really it just resonated in so many in so many interesting ways, and you know golf is personal when you play match play, so those matches you know meant a great deal. Now I've read about the Ryder Cup from the '60s and '70s, and and they were wonderful affairs, but the matches were heated. Yeah. A lot of them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It didn't mean as much
1: to everybody else, but the players cared. Sometimes the final score didn't quite reflect how close it was. You had to look at the individual
2: scores. Well, I'm sure the there were a lot of close matches. Yeah. You know, Trevino talks a lot about his Ryder Cup. He had a great Ryder Cup record, yeah. but he loved and he got to be good friends, you know, with a lot of those guys, you mm-hmm. know, uh Sam Torrance and Neil yeah. a lot of guys. So that's was the beauty of the Ryder Cup. And I, I always thought Jack was wonderful at preserving that and the concession kind of uh Even the concession, you know, it wasn't that big a give, but at the moment it was, and Mm -hmm. it, and it symbolically was huge. And then it got really contentious, but in a way more interesting. So to me, the height of the Ryder Cup was, uh, Kiowa Mm. in 91. And then even after that was over, people kind of thought that was a little excessive. It was too much. And then 99 happened, and here we are at the, at Brookline. And that was the comeback, uh, that was
1: incredible. Well the shame of that day was that the how well the Americans played got c- completely lost by the yeah. thing that happened, you know. Yeah,
2: you know, I, and your perspective, I, look at it, it, was I felt bad for Jose Maria on the 17th green. he might have made that putt, you know. He nearly did. He, yeah. Anyway, yeah, wouldn't it have that'd been something. Um, so it was unfair. Uh, but I understood the pressure that the Americans were under. Hmm. They had just lost to Valderrama in 97. Americans took a lot more heat for losing that I think than the Europeans would take. Yes. The pressure was always on them. They were always supposed to win. They were being attacked as soft and you know not uh, not really as good as uh, as as the Europeans. I mean the, the Europeans at that point had had more number ones yeah. in succession. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the explosion of relief mm. when that putt went in. And they went a little crazy and sure. It was it was uh, untoward. It was and by the way I was behind Ben Crenshaw um when the putt went in on mm. seventeen, and of course Ben has all this romantic attachment yeah. to seventeen because yeah. yeah. we met, and he did. He he didn't move. He was stunned, and then he kind of he was sitting he was sitting down anyway on, on his hands and knees, and he just leaned down and kissed the green, and then he pointed at Francis. We met's house and said thank you, Francis, and it was all very spiritual, even in that moment. So I think Ben actually also his being the captain softened. Uh, I think. The offense to Europe because that was not his intention either. It exploded, but was that bad for the Ryder Cup? No, it was good for the oh, Ryder I, Cup. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's a whole yeah, different
1: subject. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I, it, I don't want really to get bogged down on debating it, but I was listening to the golf channel on mm-hmm. television last night in my hotel room and. There's a bit of revisionist history going on. I mean, the, one of the comedies, I think it was Gary Koch, said that you know the Justin Leonard's
2: putt clinched the the, the cup no, for the did. Ryder Cup, yeah. and that's not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, but. No, you know, understandable mistake. It was, it was so climatic, but no, uh, it didn't. And uh, I don't know. I I think that was a good Ryder Cup too because there had been some some moments early on uh, in which some of the Americans were. Uh, Marco Mira and and Phil and yeah. and uh, Duvall and Tiger were questioning whether there should be some payment or at least be able to manage where the money went. Yeah. Uh. And so they got tremendous criticism because that was against the spirit of the Ryder. Yeah. You know, there's no money involved in Ryder. Yeah. That's why it's pure. Um. And afterwards, um, those guys all got closer. Yeah. Um. With the rest of the team because they had they, there had been some contentiousness starting out and everybody, I think. Duval and Tiger for the first time became closer to their peers uh, through that. So it was looked at at the moment as, oh, this is the unifying, uh, the unifying uh, dynamic of the Ryder Cup. You know, that's what's also good about it. It brings these guys closer. You know, in retrospect, I don't think Tiger necessarily wanted. He he made friends on tour, but mostly he wanted to beat everybody. So yeah, yeah. that was always the central tension for the Americans: is do I want to get close to these guys or do I want to beat them? And they were that was that was kind of a uh, cross purposes.
1: Anyway, you're the king of the segues in this podcast business. I mean, talking of money, we're going to finish up by talking about the thing that everybody's talking about yeah, in golf yeah, at yeah. the moment. Uh, we we have to kind of uh, this. I qualify it slightly by saying that this podcast won't go public for another couple of weeks. So we're. We'll be a different world. We'll yeah. be behind the curve a little yeah. bit, but um, <laughs> it's a huge subject again. But I mean, what, what do you think?
2: Well, I think that live golf. Um, look, I'm, I understand golf is played for money, and, it, and uh, I am all for the players making as much as they can um, within the structure that is good for golf. And I don't think Liv's uh, injection into the game here is good for golf. And I think that the powers that be should fight to um, win the war against Liv. And that may mean people unifying who would normally be at cross purposes um, for the betterment of the game. So sort of the enemy of my enemy of my Mm. (laughs) enemy is my friend, kind of thing. And uh so I hope, and I don't know if this is possible in a legal sense, I hope the uh the major organizations who run the majors unify to uh to resist Liv's encroachment. And I think they have the power that would be really influential. I don't know if they can do it. Um but I and without colluding, there's all kinds of, you know, barriers to them just, you know, openly doing it. But I hope there's a unification there, because I think, um, for me, the PGA Tour is still kind of the central glue that holds a professional game together, and by extension, what what people most identify to be golf. And if that gets dismantled in some way, or even altered seriously, um, I think golf is diminished. Yeah,
1: well, the way we're headed makes me think that, uh, and this was maybe asking a lot of anybody's foresight, but... The, the establishment if you like when, when this the, the the saudi money came along and and no no sane right-minded person in there is going to defend what what goes on there on a human rights level but the, the, you could argue that they could have taken a pragmatic view and 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 seen what we're seeing right now the battle that's going to ensue it's going to mm-hmm. be it could get really ugly down the road it, the pragmatic approach might have been to say right okay come in will absorb you into, this, into the system, will give you certain times of the year and, and go from there. I don't know if... I mean, that's maybe
2: asking too much. Well, I, don't it's, know. I think it's hindsight. Yeah, I don't, it is, th- yeah. And, and, you know, because Saudi Arabia, especially this country, carries such a stigma for the, for the PGA Tour to have done that, uh, well, I, I get that. Yeah, right? yeah. I think politically, what we're, what no, no, we're no, no. We, we see, don't. I don't. Think they knew the magnitude of what was coming and how much money and how much money actually ends up mattering more than anything else. I think also, and this, I'm naive about. This, I mean, I, I, I confess to being overly romantic and naive about what I thought the player, players' motivations were. Mm. And I think, to some extent, even uh, the powers that be and Jay Monahan uh, was counting on loyalty. And I, I think what we learn is, at least with a modern athlete, um, loyalty is, is, um, secondary at best. You know, making your best deal is, is, is the important thing. I think if you go to, if you went to Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer, and again, we idealize the past a lot, but if you went to them, uh, they'd say, I can't tear down what I, what I built. Mm. This, this thing was built on the shoulders of people before me. I can't just let it be on my watch disintegrate. Um, and I don't think that there's a collective feeling for that now. I mean, the most striking quote of the week, here we are at, at, again at
1: Brookline, mm-hmm. was Rody's. As typically, Rody came out with, mm-hmm. you know, I took them at their ward and I was wrong. Right. You know, that was a really telling phrase, I thought.
2: I guess so. Uh, you know, I think it's really uh, almost considered, and you know, I'm going to say it on the podcast, but I mean, I think it, it, the roots of it have been in the last presidential administration with, with Donald Trump. I, he learned that that lying works. Yeah, that's right. It does. <laughs> so, well, then, uh, my prime minister. And nobody will hold it, it against it. you for very long. And used to, lying used to be, a, you know, that was, that was the ultimate sin for a politician. And now it's sort of just a technique. Uh, and yeah, I just think it's been absorbed into the culture a bit. So it's, it's no big deal to go back on what you said. I mean, Dustin Johnson professed his loyalty to PGA tour and two weeks later he, he flipped. Uh, nobody holds it against him. He, he was a businessman. Uh, but when that is the norm, you know, you don't have any basis for uh, for trusting anything. Yeah. And so right now we're in this very unknown period. I mean, it could be that very few guys are considering jumping and it could be that, you know, the majority is thinking of jumping.
1: Uh, I well,
2: don't know because you can't just go by what people say.
1: I mean, as we sit here, I mean, you'll have heard the rumors as much as I have that, you know, the next few days there, there's going to be any number of
2: names, you know, making the jump, if you like. I mean, who knows where it ends? I've heard it. I think, I think the lifetime ban that the PJ tour possibly potentially could could issue, I think um, could be a deterrent. I don't know if that's possible, but I, I would like to see it enacted. and I hate to say that, but I think those guys knowingly you know, defied the rules of the PJ tour, and I think clearly the consequences um, to the tour are pretty apparent. These are big stakes we're playing for. So I think a, a, a very strong message with real teeth, has to be issued as a deterrent. And if it's not, people will leak over. And if the PJ Tour loses its base of stars, it loses its reason for being. Yeah. It loses its brand. It loses what it sells to the sponsors. The sponsors start pulling out of tournaments. Pretty soon you don't have anything near what you have. And this is a fragile ecosystem, as Seth Waugh calls it. Uh, people think that, oh, golf's been greater than ever and it's, and it's impermeable. No, it's not inevitable at all. And it was it took a lot for Dean Beeman to cr- construct this this um, this thing that hangs together, you know, tenuously. Uh, and he and he managed it. I think he was a genius in many ways. And and Fincham carried it on in a good way. Uh, there you can criticize the tour, and I know you have, and, and I agree with a lot of the criticisms. But it's still here. And it's still kind of holding up the game. And if it does, for example, now buy the, pe- the European tour, that's even more proof of that. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. the, as we sit here, I mean, we, we
1: the, the European tour are, are going to have to make a decision mm-hmm. as to which way they're going to jump on this. And the people listening to this will probably know the answer yeah. by the time yeah. they hear it. But, I mean, I think that the I'm, I'm hopeful in a way that the, the European tour are kind of using the, the, the leverage, the possibility of jumping to Saudi's, mm-hmm they're going to leave lever more out of the PGA Tour and there's going to be more of a bond between those two because that—that that, ideally, that's what I would like to see.
2: No, and I see your perspective and I hope that happens, honestly. I mean, use that leverage. I mean, it's very ironic that Phil, yeah, that you work, know, that quote was that up. he, I, I honestly believe, and this is just me without knowing anything, that was actually his aim, hmm. to leverage yeah. the Saudis against the PGA Tour and get what he wanted because why would you leave the game uh, or leave leave what he left yeah. for what he's going to get? I don't see it unless uh, he was really trying to be, you know, Phil Mickelson, the savior to some extent. And then I don't know what his personal issues are. They could be greater than all that. But um, I, I think uh, that might have been the ultimate truth that was going on. And, and but it, because it because it backfired, here we are, you know, because it, that opened the gates for Saudi to to really, I think, uh, um aggressively go after
1: other players I have one last question Jaime and it's uh, related to your good self Um, you're now a pundit (laughs) on the Golf Channel, Um, how is that going? It's a slightly different skill set I'm sure or maybe more than slightly than than sitting down to write in front of a computer screen but
2: um, how is it going? It's going great. I, I feel so fortunate to have, be able to say I, I had the chance to do it. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to be too self deprecating and sound false about it, but I, I'm not a trained television person, and I know I have a lot of holes in my game, uh, a lot of them. And uh, believe me, I'm very conscious of them as I'm speaking on the air. You know, <laughs> which is probably you know you got to get out of your own headspace. That's one of the things I really admire about the guys who are good on television is they're performers. And the performance is really almost the most important thing. The content's certainly important, but it has to sound good and it has to look good. And that's compelling. And if someone's stuttering or, 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 hesitating as, or looks nervous, like I have certainly, uh, the, the message doesn't get conveyed as, as, as clearly and as, uh, entertainingly, uh, or as interestingly. So I've just tried to relax.
1: And is it it kind of like you have to sit down and, and like, you know, like we're talking now, you're talking to
2: your pal? Yes. That's what you've got to do. I mean, sometimes I'm looking at the microphone right now and I'm thinking, well, this is going out there, you know, be careful. But then I thought, I'm talking to John and it's, yeah. And and I've gotten, you know, a lot of it is, you know, I grew up in an era as an older person, you know, I'm 68, television was. You know, I mean, to be on television was yeah, an amazing what, thing. Yeah. You looked at a friend, hey, that guy's on television. And there's part of me that still has that. So when I go on, I, I still feel like, oh, this is a big moment of, you know, novelty. And uh, I don't quite feel like I really have earned it or belong here. But, you know, routine and hopefully, you know, just understanding, Hey, you're going to be good at this or you're going to be bad at it. Try to be good at it. Uh, you've got to get those thoughts out of your head. So I've gotten better at it. I think the key is just knowing your subject when you can. And, and, you know, you can say you know your subject, but then say to know it well enough to actually convey it verbally. Mm. Yeah. You've got to know it really well. And sometimes I have not known as well as you need to know it because I watch Rich Learner and I watch other guys. No notes. Now, some of them just have great minds. I don't have the mind to retain all that. But, They've also absorbed it beautifully, uh, and you know sometimes you've got to work harder on on preparation and be ready. And I rehearse a lot more personally. I used to be a, uh, embarrassed to rehearse. You know, you're sitting there talking yeah. to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Now I just do it and do it and do it. I don't care how I look because it's going to matter how I look on TV more yeah. than it looks to those camera guys laughing at me or something. Yeah. But but it's been fun because it, it, it is a real collaborative effort. I mean, writing. There's I love the staffs I worked with, and I love talking to the guys I used to work with. But uh, it's still a solitary exercise. Uh, TV. I haven't made the same number of friends because I haven't been in it as long. But the actual job is a collaborative exercise. Uh, you can't just be on your own. You can't. Yeah. You can't be a cowboy. You know. You got to be a, a, a member of the army. And 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 because you you can pull the whole thing down if you're if you're if you're selfish about it or or you're just unaware. So, you know. Again, I, I've always. Hey, we've all watched a lot of television and. And to just say I was part of the medium in my career, I feel very honored, actually, to have had that much diversity in my career. And, you know, I never thought I was going to be on TV, so it's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going
1: to finish with a little bit of advice for the people listening to this, is that if you do get the chance to to see Jaime and listen to him on television, pay attention because you'll learn something. Jaime, thanks for your time. It's been great
2: talking to you. John, always great. And uh, congratulations on this podcast because I know... I know you and I know all the really very very deep thoughts you have about the game and sometimes it's hard to get out there, and this is a wonderful way to get it out there. Thanks
0: for your time again. Thank you. Yes, some wonderful first hand accounting there of some of the best players the game's seen by one of its best observers and chroniclers. I hope that you enjoyed listening to Jaime Diaz as as much as I did. Truly a giant of the golf writing caper. That's it for episode sixty nine of the show, but make sure to join us again next time here on The Thing About Golf.